And this is what cinema does, is it gives you a series of these events that occur that good filmmakers kind of build up into an idea of truth. Now, they're never going to tell you what the truth is. And if they do tell you what the truth is, it's bad filmmaking. Hello and welcome, fellow human. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Humans in Love, a podcast that looks at culture, relationships, and personal development from unconventional perspectives. Join me as I dig into the question of how people like you and I might get more out of life and love. Thanks for being here. Hey guys, I will get to introducing my guest in a moment, but as I'm Standing here today, at the beginning of the week, standing at my makeshift recording studio (laughs) vocal booth in my closet in my apartment here in Chiang Mai, Thailand, it just feels strange not to say anything about what happened last week and who we lost. As many of you know, as most of you probably know, last week the chef, writer, television presenter Anthony Bourdain uh, killed himself while he was on a shoot in France. Now, I assume that most of you are familiar with Anthony Bourdain, but if you're not, I mean, the guy had probably what I would say is the the most coveted job in the world. He hosted a show on CNN called Parts Unknown, which is the best travel show you'll you'll ever see. I mean, truly, most travel shows I find are pretty bad. You know, plastic hosts and manufactured scenes and content that just reeks of corporate influence and everyone's trying to present a very squeaky clean image and everyone's happy all the time and Anthony's travel shows were never like that they were always very real and often very moving and funny and for lack of a better word genuine like you knew when Anthony was was having a good time and you knew when he wasn't having such a great time there are a couple episodes uh, where he's in eastern Europe where (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he's uh, he's not really enjoying himself, and it's very clear. And I really liked that. You know, I liked the fact that that he was genuine, and that you could actually tell what he was, how he was feeling, uh, in any given moment. But if this experience has proven anything, it's that we didn't know what he was thinking and feeling, because from the outside looking in, it seemed like he had it all. He had beautiful daughter, and he was in love, apparently. And he had, as he said so many times, the best job in the world. And I've had a pretty crap weekend, <laughs> to be honest. You know, it's, it's the, not, this isn't about me, but it, I'm surprised by how much I feel like I've lost a close friend. And I know that I'm one of probably a million or two million or three million others around the world who feel that way, particularly people like me who've spent the better part of their adult lives traveling. I mean, he had an enormous, enormous impact on people like me and even people who who didn't travel, people who just wanted to understand the world a little better. He, uh, there really was no one else quite like him. And it just keeps hitting me like a punch in the gut over and over, like I'm never going to get to see this guy again. And the, the absolute shock of the loss, I think, is something that's going to take a long time to, to wear off. You know, the last time 
a celebrity died and I and I felt a deep, deep, deep sense of loss and grief was was when Leonard Cohen died back, I think, in 2016. But that wasn't a shock. He was an old man. He spoke about death a lot. We knew that he was ill. But Anthony Bourdain, I mean, he was in good health, 61 years old, and, and just like that, he's gone. I suspect that I'll have a lot more to to say about this in a future episode. But for now, I just want to emphasize that if you or someone you know is feeling low seems like an understatement, but if you're struggling with depression, if you're, you know, having thoughts of suicide or anything else, for God's sake, get help. I mean, seek out someone in your area, seek out a therapist, seek out your national suicide hotline if you have one. Don't let these things fester. Don't let these feelings fester. And particularly to the men listening to this, because it seems that men are less likely than women to reach out for help. You know, talk to someone. Please take the steps you you need to take to get help and to get well again, because we need good people in the world. We lost a really, really good man last week, and, um, and it makes me angry. And I don't want to lose more good people before their time. So if you need help, please seek it out. And I'll dedicate this episode to, to Anthony Bourdain, who, who's done so much to inspire me and a million others like me around the world. On a much happier note, my guest today is James Bacho. James is a professor, a writer, and a lecturer on a variety of subjects, from storytelling and cinema to philosophy and media. He's the author of Sound for Independent Audiovisual Storytelling, and his second book, Terrence Malick's Unseeing Cinema, Memory, Time, and Audibility, has just been published this week. Jim currently teaches film theory and practice in the cinema and television department at United International College in Zhuhai. For the past 11 years, he's taught at universities in China, South Korea, and the United States, and given lectures and readings in Singapore, Australia, and Denmark. And he recently got his PhD at the European Graduate School, which we'll talk about in this interview. But more than all that, Jim is a friend of mine. Jim is a traveler like myself, and we connected for the first time probably three or four years ago here in Chiang Mai, and we got on immediately. I like the way his mind works. I like the way he inspired me to think about things in new ways and appreciate art in new ways. And I like the way that we could have disagreements on various topics uh, and still stay friends, that he was okay with disagreeing about different things and looking at things from different perspectives, and that didn't impact our friendship. I really value that in people, and, uh, and Jim is very willing to to disagree with you, and to discuss just about anything. In today's conversation, which Jim and I had at my kitchen table here in Chiang Mai, we talk about film theory and film criticism, film appreciation, ways that we can experience film in new ways. We talk about guilty pleasures in music and art and literature. We talk about relationships a little bit. We talk about a whole lot of things. And I think you'll appreciate another wide-ranging conversation and a very frank conversation in today's installment of Humans in Love. A quick reminder before we get started that, once again, I have no sponsors, no advertisers, nothing. It's just me. So I won't bother you with ads during this broadcast, during this podcast. But I will ask you now that if you're enjoying this podcast and you'd like me to continue making new episodes, please take 24 seconds. I think that's probably how long it'll take you. Go onto iTunes. Be sure you subscribe to Humans in Love and leave a rating and a review. Without any further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation today with my friend, Jim Bacho. 
So your PhD is in philosophy, art, and critical thought yes. from the European Graduate School. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, the question of the utility of a degree like that, the practical utility, um, a PhD in that field in particular, it's about a lot more than practical utility. But I guess one thing, even though I've known you for a long time, I've always been really interested in is, in a sense, what is the practical utility of that degree? But more particularly, how do you watch movies and what you might do watching a film different from me? Because movies, it seems to me, play a pretty huge role in your life. You're always, you know, you post about them on Facebook a lot. It's obviously, you know, one of your main passions. And to start off, I guess I'm just curious, like, how do you watch movies and do with, you know, take that question however you want? Well, there's, I mean, there's two aspects to that. One is the European Graduate School. Um, and that, um, it's, it's an interesting university because it's, it's a way of getting your PhD um, in a very compact uh, way in the sense that they have these classes that go from morning until very late at night. Um, and then they get some of the best philosophers from around the world to come for these summer sessions. So it's very concentrated in the summer. So for me, I was able to keep my teaching job while I was getting my PhD. Um, and they get Zizek there, Badu, all of these, uh, Judith Butler, um, all of these um, well-known philosophers to come and, and do the courses. So it's very on-your-own kind of thing. Um, the problem is it's uh, maybe not a problem, but um, it, it doesn't have quite the... Um, it's not structured like a typical PhD in that, um, you know, you have the classes, you know, during a semester and all of that sort of thing. But the advantage it has is that if you are have the initiative, um, it enables you to get in there, go deep, find the aspects of philosophy that you like, um, and it extends also to um, art, aesthetics, filmmaking. Um, there's a lot about filmmaking, architecture, and politics. Um, it allows you to get right in, dig right in, and you're going to meet people very easily. So. Um, uh, it's it's a really good university for that, but it's very hands-on. You have to basically take take your um, own initiative and you know write your dissertation based on what you're interested in from the classes that you take there. So it's really kind of um, unusual in that way, and you really bond with other people. And so I have a lot of friends throughout the world, um, and especially throughout Asia and in Europe, um, who I've met through that program, and, and the, the bonds are very tight. So it's a good university for that. Um, and that's benefited by, um, you know, things like social networking, Google Hangouts, you know, we'll, we'll get together once a month and talk about where our research is and things like that. Um, so it's kind of very, very self-directed that way. Um, again, it's kind of broken into there's uh, the people who study film, there's people who study philosophy, there's people who study political science. My interest has always been in film and in storytelling. And that was my um, MA too. Um, but I was also interested in philosophy. So it's kind of bringing together um, aspects of philosophy and yeah. film. Just to pause there for one moment, where did that interest in film and storytelling come from? Like, were you a kid who, like, you know, borrowed your parents' movie recorders? Or, you know, where, where does that come from for you? Um, yeah, yeah, I, I think, think it comes from... I've always had a, an interest in landscapes. When I was very young, my, my dad would take me to the mountains and we would go backpacking and we'd take these extended six-day trips. And, you know, for a five, six, seven, eight-year-old, you know, that's 
pretty overwhelming to be out there in the wilderness. And so um, landscapes, you know, the setting aspect of film is very interesting to me. So I felt like that kind of romantic, I mean, not when you're five or six or seven years old, but later reflecting on it, you know, it's kind of this, you're this person in, in, in nature. And I've always been gravitated to, to films like that, the connection of character and, and setting, you know, a person in a particular setting. Um, I'm sure that those childhood aspects have fed into that. I think another thing that, I, that gravitates me to film is that it's time-based, mm. like music. So music is very important to me. And music and film are both very time-based um, works. And now, when you say time-based, what exactly do you mean? So, so it's, it's unfolding in time, which is different from, say, um, photography or painting. I mean, photography, you know, there's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a moment that you, where you imagine, you know, the history of it and the importance of it. But cinema actually moves, music actually moves. And um, that's always been interesting just to watch the way and listen to the way things unfold. Um, so, you know, that... I mean, there's different. There's many different ways of conceiving cinema. You know, of course, there's just at the level of entertainment, and then there's a film, and it says something about our human condition, right? So there's that, and I think that's the very popular way of looking at it. But there's also many, many, many deep ways that you can think about film um, if you if you kind of let go of the idea that you're at a distance from it. So if you allow yourself to enter into it. Um, then it becomes an as a strange kind of um, aspect of your own sense of memory unfolding. So this is something that, that I'm sort of looking at in my own writing, is this entering into idea that it's an experience more than it is a text. I mean, a lot of times people in philosophy or in critical theory think of film as the text. You know, it's it's like it's with a sense of real detachment. With a, it, to me, it's a sense of detachment. It's it's an analytical way of thinking about films, and I've never really been very interested in analysis of of that's of that's surprising. Filmmaking. Isn't that isn't that <laughs> what your degree would be all about? Well, I guess I mean there's different ways to think of analysis too. There's psychoanalysis. There's anal There's semi semi sorry semiotics semiotics and semiology. You know, in terms of analysis, um, these things aren't so interesting to me because of that distancing. But if I can make a connection, if I can make an empathetic connection, I lose my necessity to analyze. And then I'll think about it later. But, you know, I mean, I saw Dunkirk recently and um, I did not enjoy that movie at all. I really hated that movie actually because it, it was just so, re it was not reflexive, it was just so, um, to me it was very cold and inhuman that I didn't have any connection with these people so I'm gonna I'm gonna pause you right there because I'm really interested in this idea um, and I want to be really clear about what you mean when you talk about entering into a film when I hear that I think of any experience you have when you're watching you know a really great film or a particularly resonant film or one that really grabs you like I think I told you before my first exposure to, to Terrence Malick was watching the tree of life and and it shattered me and i think because i it you know it you know it spoke to certain things that happened to me when i was a kid and, and relationships i had and stuff and it it really you know i i thought about it for a couple of days it kind of left me reeling for a couple of days and in, in a sense even though i really enjoyed it it was it was an intense experience is that what you're talking about when you're talking about entering into a film like what do you mean by that and and how do you do that 
I think that the word that keeps coming to me is um, ineffable. It's something that you can't quite express in language. You don't know why that film affected you. I don't really either. Um, even but don't I've, I? You, I mean, I kind of just gave a, you know, I suppose a um, an intellectual yeah, analysis of why. <laughs> yeah. But you're saying that there's, there's a different quality to, to films where you enter into them that is beyond our intellectual understanding altogether. Because this is what affects us at this first level of experience. I mean, a lot of philosophy talks about this. Um, but if you go into a film analyzing it, um, that's a way you can enjoy a film and appreciate a film. That's the way you read a film. I don't want to read a film. Uh, and if I do read a film, then I am reasoning my way through the film. I don't want to reason my way through the film. It's not like reading a book. It's, it's something that is going to move independent of me. I'm not going to set the, the film as well, you can, but I'm really not going to, I'm going to give myself over to the experience. Um, and there's different philosophical ways of looking at this. Like, you know, there's sort of the post-structuralist, post-modernist way of kind of deconstructing and, and really um, taking apart what is the meaning of this in its variety of interpretations. But for me, I, the philosophers that I like are people like um, uh, Henri Bergson, who um, was around early 1900s. Um, and then he influenced uh, another French uh, philosopher, um, Deleuze. And both of them kind of are trying to um, see film as a form of expression rather than something to be kind of understood or analyzed. Um, so it's a different, it's a different way of, of thinking about it. For someone like Deleuze, film is not a text. It's a series of images and signs. And for me, it's, it's, it's the images and signs that what I'm trying to get at is an aspect of memory that is not my own. But there's some kind of connection there. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. It does and it doesn't. Are you saying, correct me if I'm wrong, but... So, okay, let, you go to the theater, okay? Yeah. You go to the theater, um, so let's say by yourself. Let's mm -hmm. say you're not distracted by a, a good-looking woman as a date or something. Let's say you just go to the theater by yourself. And you, you sit down and watch a film. Are you saying you kind of just throw yourself, kind of, you're kind of at the mercy of the film? No. Okay, well, well because what you do can't you do? Because you can't turn it off. You can't turn off what you can't turn off the thing, you know, that kind of, I mean, your analytical mind. Yeah, the thing is, we think in different ways. And, it, you know, the, the interesting thing about cinema to me is there's so many ways, again, that you can conceive of cinema, just like there's so many ways that you can think about life, right? Okay. So given any situation, you feel something, you also reason through something, you think ahead, you draw from your past, you're thinking of a memory, you know, or you're not thinking of a memory and this kind of pure experience comes to inform you, 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 you know, you halt time, you suspend time, you achieve this kind of elevation. There's so many ways of, of living in any profound moment, right? Yeah. Well, cinema is, is made of this kind of stuff and it drops you in the middle of this. Um, but yeah, when I'm sitting in a theater, I'm not always, um, you know, eliminating my sense of self. I'm myself, right? And I'm a rational person and I'll, I will catch on to things you know that the director is trying to do or things like that but I it, it the cinematic moments for me are best when I'm not doing that when I've totally given myself over to it now this has you know a lot of philosophy a lot of critical theory says there's a danger in this because there's then you know a kind of ideological component of cinema sort of like Lenny Riefenstahl if you know who she is yeah. the, the one who you know yeah uh, so there's that you know you become me mesmerized by the film 
Um, so there's that way of looking at it, but I'm not really looking at it that way. I think I think that film should be effective, affective. It that should affect you. And so when you speak about those those you know your favorite moments watching films, where you're giving yourself over to it, are you speaking about primarily an emotional experience, or like it almost speaks like you're you're almost uh, it almost sounds like like a spiritual experience or something? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I, I think it is something like that. I also tend to be. I mean, you know. Postmodernism is still very, you know, and deconstruction is very big right now. But I'm, I'm more of a romantic when it comes to philosophy and, really and filmmaking. That's why I like people like Terrence Malick and, you know, Stanley Kubrick and people like this, um, because I do have more of a romantic conception of things. And I think that is a very guy way of looking at things. I think um, a very guy way. Yeah, I think so. You know, the, you know, there's, I don't know if you know that photograph by, um, and I'm going to forget his name, Casper David Friedrich. Of the of the guy standing there on the hill, um, it's a classic Romantic era painting, and he sees the landscape in front of him, and it's just the classic Romantic idea. And I think, you know, um, I think a lot of it's a very guy thing. A lot of the Romantic writers were men, you know, mm -hmm. writing about these things, painting about these things, and then you you have filmmakers who film that way too. And I I, I do tend to gravitate to that. I also gravitate to sort of more Romantic styles of music and. Um, you know, something that's really going to pull at my um, my sense of imagination, which is really what romantic forms of art are supposed to do. See, now, as a plane flies overhead, such are la, the perks la, la, of... La, la, yeah, la. Let's take a sip of tea. Living near the airport. <laughs> well, all of a sudden, you, you make a lot more sense to me, and your love of Terrence Malick makes a lot more sense to me, yeah. because Malick is possibly, for, for my money, the most affective filmmaker I've seen. I mean, between him and David Lynch, perhaps, at least for me. Um, David Lynch is another good example, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what... I mean, okay, so most of us go to see a film and we'll say, oh, we liked it or we didn't like it. Um, I'm certainly... I certainly do that as well. Um, but for you, what, what would you say makes a good film for you? Like, or, or even a great film? I think... Um, it has to have ideas. But doesn't every film have ideas? No. Okay, what, they, do you, what do you mean by that? Well, we could talk about Dunkirk again, just because it's so fresh in my mind and because it's so annoyed the hell out of me. Um, <laughs> okay, let, let's, have, it, let's have an argument in my kitchen about Dunkirk. I don't think there's an idea in Dunkirk. I think there's a situation. And Christopher Nolan decided that he was going to um, practice his technique at the expense of human beings who fought in that battle. So you almost see this kind of like a masturbatory... Not exercise. even masturbatory, I think there's something... I think there's something inhuman in that film. Mm. I think he dehumanized people. The way that I've been thinking about it is, the way he treated those soldiers in that film was like taking a can of Raid Bug Killer and just spraying it across the line, I think. And then filming it in a very crafty, clever way with the three times, you know. Um, I, I think there's something, it's, it's a great exercise in um, image making. So when you say there's no ideas in that film, my, I immediately thought, well, I mean, just at a base level, you could say, well, war is hell. But in the sense, I know what you mean, because when you watch that film, you don't entirely get the sense that war is hell because you don't really have a strong emotional connection to any of the characters. Is that kind of what you're... Yeah, and this is, I mean, to, to get back to your question, the things that, I, I mean, everybody's going to appreciate different aspects of cinema of course. Uh, um, 
for me, I have to have a connection to a character. I, I just have to. And, and Terrence Malick, for all of the criticism he gets, I think really gets that. Um, you know, in this film, I couldn't connect to any character. I, I couldn't connect to anyone. They were, there were no people in that movie. There were only persons. Or, no, sorry, let me, let me, let me flip that. There, there were no persons in that film. There were only people. There was no individuals in that film. There was only a swath of soldiers. Um, but, you know, different, it, I'll say this, the fact that it upset me so much makes the film valuable because people are talking about it. And I seem to be on the, um, uh, of the minority opinion in my thought of this film. I think that it is interesting in the way it dehumanizes people. Um, but I don't know if that was his intention. But, you know, I, I attack Christopher Nolan a lot because, um, you know, I loved his early films. Well, for people listening, he's probably best known for uh, the recent Batman trilogy, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and Inception. Inception and uh, Interstellar, right? Oh, yeah, Interstellar. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I, I mean, he bothers me on a variety of levels. First is his total capitalist, corporatist ideology in the Batman films. Um, we don't have to go too deep into that. But look for... Zizek did a whole bit on that, which I think is right on. And Batman, I love Batman because his... And, and they even actually directly spoke to this. I, I saw the trailer for the newest upcoming Batman film with Ben Affleck, which looks pretty bad in my in my estimation. But um, he literally says, which which is I've said for years, it's like, what's Batman's superpower? He's rich, yes. right? And he, and he actually says that in the new trailer. Like, <laughs> what's your superpower? I'm rich. Yeah, and what is his of, mission? Yeah. To restore the dominant order of things. Right. I mean, it was so blatant in the so third you film. Were, in the dark night, you were cheering for Bane. Well, I couldn't understand a word Bane was saying. That was the other problem. Is, I mean, the other, I have so many problems with Nolan's film. The other thing is his films just talk too much. There's just too much talking. There's no you space. No, you can't. And I think that's him compensating. I think that's him trying to... I, I mean, my, my opinion of Nolan, I know he admires Terrence Malick. Who, Terrence Malick is my favorite filmmaker. But to me, Nolan can't even get close to Malik because he doesn't have any soul. What an indictment. Yeah. I just, that's the way I think about him. Holy what shit. Really think? Is this being broadcast? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, okay, well, well, I, I asked you what your idea of great, what a great film would be. Or what, are, what great films do for you. And you said a great film has to have ideas. Okay. Give so me has- an example of a great film with ideas. And, and what, do you, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, I don't even need to know what the idea is. Um, there's, a, um, there's a really good book by um, Stanley Cavell, and he's talking to, I forget the other guy's name, um, but they're talking about, you know, what makes a, a film philosophical, for example. Um, and you don't even have to know what the idea is. You don't need to know it or say what it is, because a film should never direct its ideas to you. But if you take an idea from it, if you can see that the filmmaker is trying to get at something, um, you know, then, then to me it's a good film. Some basic truth about the human condition or it raises an important question? Or... So here's the thing. I mean, this goes back to Aristotle's conception of, of poetry and poetry is the, is the precursor to, um, you know, modern filmmaking. There's, if you go back and you read Aristotle's Poetics, for example, you can read it in terms of cinema. And there's this idea of mimesis, which is there's the, there's the general idea of a truth. Now, if I tell you this is the truth of the world, 
that there's, let's say, um, a, a magic scorpion that, um, you know, kind of sprayed this venom, and out of that the world was created. You know, <laughs> that's what you always thought, right? Um, you know, there's a, I could say that's the truth, right? And then if I tell you that, and if I say that to you, you're going to go, okay, or no. The idea of mimesis in Aristotle is that there's, you create these kind of fictions, or you create these kind of images, or he puts it in terms of action, these actions, from which I can get a specific idea of something that's going to reflect a greater truth. And this is what cinema does, is it gives you a series of these events that occur, that give you, that you can kind of, that good makers, good filmmakers kind of build up into an idea of truth. Now they're never going to tell you what the truth is, and if they do tell you what the truth is, it's bad filmmaking. But if they give you a series of, of specific events, something happened to me that happens to somebody else, and then, you know, the great filmmakers make all of these connections, right? Like Tarantino does this as well. All of these various connections, um, and then you leave the... Th the cinema going, you know, what the fuck did I just see? Can we swear on this? Yeah. What, you know, what, what the fuck did I just see? But then if you, you actually have to leave the theater and think about it. This is why I like going to movies alone. I see. Because I like to think about it later. Right. And when you're, when you're with someone, there's always that, you know, you want to talk about it. What did you think? Oh, yeah, it was good. Yeah. yeah I liked it too. Let's get a piece. You're always going to get on the very surface level. Right. Yeah. Right. It so takes... Like to watch film kind of just go home and... Yeah, it takes time to think through right. it, you know. Right. Um... And then again, like if you imagine any experience of your life, you know, there's some specific thing that happened to you and you're like, oh, this is just an indication of whatever, you know. If you're a religious person, you say, oh, you know, this is some kind of divine thing that just happened to me that gives me a sense of the divine God or what, you know. And if you're not religious, you see things just kind of happening that kind of build up to what it is that is your life. So, I mean... A good film really gets at that aspect of experience that kind of does is never going to dictate to you any meaning. And, you know, like Aristotle was very much against that. But it's these little truths. It's these little things that point to the larger truth. That is what, you know, good poetry should do. Good tragic poetry should do. So can you give me some kind of example, like a film you've seen in your life that had a this kind of impact on you that, that was... Because it seems to me like when you when you talk about this, it almost sounds like you're saying... Good films should be, of course, provocative and unsettling. Mm -hmm. Like you, they shouldn't, you know, hand you all the answers or the 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 you know the main themes of the film on a silver platter. Right. They should um, raise more questions than the answer. Is that is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, I mean, there's I don't know if you want to call it a, a didactic element, but there is something that where you know when when you're watching something, it 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 that it's going to open something that you have to bring yourself to. You know, you have to bring yourself to the thinking of a film if you want to think a film. Can you explain that? Uh, well, it's, I mean, it's every film. It's also everything that you experience every day. You know, it's, it, there's something that happens to you. And if you go, oh, that guy was a dick, you know, without you seeing that, you know, there's something more to what happened in the situation than you're thinking about. Right. Don't that, trust your first impulses. Or, I mean, you can't. You can. I mean, this kind of thing happens. We do it all the time. You can't help yourself. We are instinctive creatures. We react to things. But it doesn't mean that that's the whole story. And, and there's always a series of relations that connect with this actual thing that just happened. 
So that's another thing that I think good filmmakers do is they build a series of relations. Um, and this is also um, very philosophical as well. You know, everything, um, you know, is connected to something else, is connected to something else, is connected to something else. Now, what film does is it drops you right in the middle of this. And good filmmakers know where to drop you and where to lead you. But you got to think it yourself if you want to think of it. And if you don't want to think it, it's, then, it's a, then it's a film that you don't have to think about. And those are good too. But for me, I need something. It's like, you know, I don't want to eat a cheeseburger, you know, when I go watch a movie. I want to eat some tandoori chicken and some, you know, palak paneer or something. You know, I want some when variety you of... You know, I'm making a metaphor oh, there. I see. <laughs> <laughs> see, I was... My first impulse was I was picturing you... Uh, Eating Indian food and uh, <laughs> no, that would just stink up the place, and that yeah. would totally change the whole feel of right. You know, even with a Bollywood film, I don't think that would work. But no, I, well, I see maybe, what you mean. Actually. Yeah, I, 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 what you mean when you use that that metaphor, it makes a lot of sense because I'm someone who really loves, and I think we we share some tastes in in music and and filmmaking, but I love bold tastes. Yeah, I love you know. Uh, whiskey that you can really, really, you know, it enters every pore of your, yeah. every taste bud of your mouth and spicy food. And, and uh, I often like my art um, the same. But think about this as well. When you drink that whiskey, right? When you drink that glass of whiskey. Speaking of which, it's almost cocktail hour. <laughs> um, you, you, you take out the bottle, you twist the cap. I cry for a while. <laughs> <laughs> But you pour, you know, you pour it into the glass. There's a ritual to it, right? And you take a sip. And then you let it sit and, you know. The shaking stops. <laughs> I'll stop. I'll stop. <laughs> there are many elements to the tradition of drinking the whiskey, yes. Right. Um, but, but I think my point is there's, a, there's not only that things are bold, but there's a dynamics to it. You know, you take a drink and then you stop. And then, you know, you breathe and you think and then you you know whatever and then you take another sip you know there's a dynamic so if you just just dr are drinking whiskey without thinking about it you would lose the experience and the taste changes as well like i've actually this is going to sound like i'm some sort of alcoholic enabler or something but i've actually had like i've i've taught people how to drink whiskey i've taught people how to taste wine and not that i'm any kind of expert but i'm just you know going by my own experience and stuff but yeah, the taste changes and the experience changes. Like when you think when you drink one glass of whiskey, at least for me, that, that whiskey changes over time. And from the beginning of the end of the experience, it's very different because your mouth um, adjusts to it. And, and, you know, the first sip is different than the last. So yeah. I think that metaphor does work in terms, of, in terms of film. But also, I mean, think about, you know, what I was saying in terms of the relation of character and setting, right? When we first started talking. Every time you take a sip of whiskey... If you're in a different situation, I mean, you're always in a different situation anyway. You're in a different mood. Something happened to you that day, you know, or you're over at a friend's house or you're somewhere else, right? It's the same whiskey, but the context is different. And I think this is, this is, there's something to be said for that as well in terms of film is that there's never just this thing that happens. It's everything that's related to it. This is what I mean by relations. Good filmmakers make a series of relations that contextualize whatever is happening. And if we want to go back to Dunkirk, there was none of that. It was just from the beginning to end. It was just this thing. Okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to this question then. Um, in contrast to Dunkirk, give me an example of a film that you th really love, you think is a great film, that does what Dunkirk did not for your money. Hmm. Um, 
Well, I think... Let me say this about Dunkirk. I think it is a brave film. I, because, I mean, <laughs> it's a brave film because I don't think anybody's done something like that before. That, to me, was so blatantly inhuman. Um, but <laughs> You mean a war film that felt inhuman? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But, you know, I mean, there's... So he's the exception. I mean, there, there's so many good war films that you could. That you well, could what about of. the Thin Red Line? Yeah, the Thin Red Line. Is, the, the reason why that works. I mean, I actually did a comparison in my. I have a book coming out. Um, that oh. is, it's called Terrence Malick's Unseeing Cinema, and it's about sort of not the visual aspects of a film, but the aspects of memory and time and listening. Um, so I, I put the Thin Red Line in comparison to Saving Private Ryan. Mm. Now, Saving Private Ryan is a great film, I think. Um, and that opening scene, I saw that when it came out in the theater, and I was devastated. It's unforgettable. And it's, I think, like, the resonance of that scene with so many people. Yes. And I'm, I'm a, a history nerd, as you know. I've, you know. I've been really, really interested in World War II for a long time. Um, and I kind of thought when the first time I saw the film that I was alone in my reaction to the, this visceral reaction to this film because I thought, A, I thought they did it so well, the, you know, the, the landing at uh, Normandy. But any time that, you know, you bring up Saving Private Ryan, that's all people talk about is mm -hmm. that, opening, that opening sequence all these years later. But let me ask you this. When you, okay, so the idea of seeing the film is one thing and then leaving and thinking about it. Did you leave and think about the film? Do you remember? And I would like to know what you thought about when you left the film. Because I had a very specific thought. See, I think, yeah, I certainly, I certainly thought about the film. But I, again, my experience is probably um, perhaps somewhat uncommon because I spent so many years studying history and it's such an interest of mine. And I think that's partly why I liked Dunkirk mm -hmm. in, in a lot of ways. Because like, I love the feeling of like, you know, I love going to museums and seeing things involved in history. And like, I like the, the, the feeling like I get a better understanding of what actually happened. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, I thought Dunkirk was, was successful. Mm -hmm. um, you know, from a sort of, you know, what is it, 500 miles up view, you know, yeah, from, a, from a bird's eye view. Um, but I think probably when I left Saving Private Ryan, it was, I was still thinking about that opening scene because it was so, so devastating. And Tom Hanks's performance, I guess. Why was it devastating? Because the tension was such that, uh, I mean, your heart was still kind of throbbing from it, uh, at least for me. And uh, I, I, I mean, Tom Hanks's character, I mean, we can talk about you know, portrayals of men and masculinity in film. Mm -hmm. But for my money, Tom Hanks's character in that film is one of the all time, you know, just in terms of, you know, I, 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 um, I mean, the Sopranos, I'm jumping all over here, but it, I think it's connected. I never saw the Sopranos. You never saw the Sopranos. Okay. Well, I think it's, it's, it's my favorite television show of all time. But one of the things about the show that I find really interesting is Tony Sobrano looking at his life, even though he's in many ways, you know, the one half of his life, people would say he's the ultimate al alpha male this incredibly powerful domineering figure, but he still looks back to the past and admires men of the past for having more emotional strength and resilience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when men were, when men were men right. and women were women, that kind of thing. And I, I think I had a touch of that leaving Cyber, saving private Ryan, like Tom Hanks. I feel like that powerful masculine per performance in terms of sacrifice and duty and honor and emotional strength um, and physical strength, in resilience, I mean, it, I kind of left the, the film thinking that, oh, geez, you know, like, where are the men like that anymore? I want to be like that. Mm -hmm. So I think from my experience, that's probably what I left the film thinking about. Okay, so you finally got to what I was I was thinking. I mean, you, you notice it just, I mean, I'm, I'm asking you, the, I'm being sort of Socratic here. I'm asking you the question to see how you, how you respond. And, you, and you're starting off by saying that 
you know, you're talking about it in its filmic sense and its in its technique, and but eventually you got around to what how it affected you. Yes. So the, so and that's the important thing I think that any film should do. For me, when I got out of Saving Private Ryan, I was so devastated because I've never been through that, right. and my generation will ne- probably never go through that. I mean, excepting of course, you know, the people who have fought in Iraq and Afghanistan and that sort of thing. I will never have to deal with that. I, I felt soft as a man. Yes, I exactly. Felt very, very soft. And this is why you realize, I think it's just two years after that, Fight Club came out. That's right. And now, what's the thing about Fight Club? Remember his speech. We're the middle children of history. We have no great war. Right. Our great war is our is our lives, and that's all we've got. And that that to me is what's so powerful about a film like uh, Fight Club, which is something I've probably watched ten times. Oh, yeah, I love Fight Club. Um, because that, I mean, that's a movie about masculinity because we're de-emasculated is that the word i think it's just emasculated okay we're emasculated um but we're we're because we don't have that fight and and so we're sort of in this in this world of commerce and um consumerism you know that's that's the thing that you can take from that film i mean david lynch makes it fairly obvious that that's what it is but it's not just a movie about guys fighting and find their manning, finding their manhood through fighting it's that we've become consumers that's that's the thing with the film and we, if you really want to find a sense of your um, agency your sense of self you have to go insane and invent somebody you know to beat up you know um, just so you can feel alive well, look, look at spectator sports. I mean, I know spectator sports have been, you know, since the Greeks, I guess, or perhaps, oh, yeah. perhaps earlier. They've been a big thing for a while. But like, what else can explain millions and millions and millions of men getting so fired up mm-hmm. by watching, you know, images on a screen or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, was, I was actually just watching a video this morning of this guy at a Toronto Blue Jays game, a playoff game last year, baseball team. A fan, he was this fan who threw his beer uh, into, this, into the uh, field. Yeah. when an opposing player was about to catch a, a fly ball. And he seemed like a very mild-mannered, you know, down-to-earth, normal guy. <laughs> very Canadian. It was a very un-Canadian thing to do, to, to freak out and, like, throw this beer at this, this poor baseball player. Um, but it caused this uproar in Canada. It was this big deal. But then you see this guy, and, and, and you, know, you think about him just becoming so overwhelmed by this playoff game, right? You know, these, this, you know, our millionaires versus your millionaires on a baseball mm-hmm. field, you know? And he's getting so overwhelmed that he actually chuck his beer and throw it at someone. Yeah. I think it speaks to this, this crisis of masculinity addressed in, in, uh, in Fight Club and perhaps indirectly in, in, addressed in, in Saving Private Ryan. I think it all, it's, you know, it's, it comes from the same um, source. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and that's why it's so effective. Again, it's that affective kind mm-hmm. of thing that happens. But then, okay, so you've got that powerful scene. The problem that I had with Saving Private Ryan was, first of all, it, it spent a lot of time identifying its bad guys. Um, and then it talked a lot. And then, and then it had another battle. Now, it, it's the complete opposite of a film like The Thin Red Line. Mm-hmm. Nobody dies until 45 minutes into the film. So for Terrence Malick, he's, he, wants, he wants these soldiers to deal with their world before they deal with an enemy he also gives the japanese point of view you know he's um he's really kind of seeing this in a naturalistic sense where you know men are part of nature um 
And, you know, a film like Saving Private Ryan, you know, there's a scene, I read about this in the book, there's a scene where there's a, a gunner, a German gunner, you know, who's, who's just mowing down these um, Allied troops. And um, th- his buddy pats him on the head, you know, like, good I job. Yeah, and we're immediately instructed by Steven Spielberg to hate them. Of course, that's the way Germans are depicted um, in cinema. Malik doesn't do this, even though there were atrocities, you know. But, I mean, there's atrocities in all of war. But he he's, doesn't really make a sharp differentiation between the Japanese and the Americans. Even though he focuses on the Americans, everybody's a, a living creature in this film, and war comes to this situation. War comes to this environment. And so it's a much more um, effective film in that sense, in that there's not a clear morality thing at work. There's human beings trying to live, and the absurdity of trying to kill each other you know, in this in this setting, in this situation. And then, I mean, the other great thing about um, Malik to me is in that film is when he started to split his time. So he, so, you know, Saving Private Ryan goes from beginning to end. I mean, there's a, it's, there's the flashback and, you know, returning to the grave site. But it's basically a linear film. In, save, in um, The Thin Red Line, Terrence Malik started to split his time. So, but he doesn't do straight flashbacks. They overlap. And so, you know, there's the guy, Private Bell, whose wife is in, is in um, you know, back home, wherever, in the States. You remember those scenes? Yeah. She's swinging on a swing and stuff like that. Well, as that... As the movie goes, you know, you assume that's a flashback. But then, you know, there's a man in her bed at one point. Now, is that a flashback or is this a new man? You know, so slowly this flashback starts taking on, maybe this is a coexistence of times. Maybe this is happening right now. Um, and this is what really became Malick's cinema, is this, is this coexistence of, of times. Um, and really, in later films like the, like the Tree of Life, it becomes the thought of a character. So these images are not just happening, they're the thinking of somebody. That's the thing that I'm trying to get at with, with Malik, that interests me with Malik. But so, you know, I, I mean, I'm kind of rambling, but those are two very, very different ways of depicting war, right? One is there's a good guy and there's a bad guy. And the way you put it, I think, was so appropriate. You said Spielberg instructs us to hate the German. I guess, so to, let me just, before you um, continue with that thought, I guess if I feel like I'm being instructed, if I feel like I'm being told how to think, I, I immediately have a problem with the film. And I think that Christopher Nolan does this with music. I think he's always dominating the emotional tension without letting it loose, without letting me have some silence to think about things. Whereas Malik does it all the time. Right. And I, I suppose someone listening to this would say, okay, well, Spielberg instructs us to hate the German soldiers. But, you know, someone listening, I, I can imagine, would say, well, Jesus Christ, if you can't hate the German soldiers during World War II, who can you hate? Okay, you know? so but the there brave, you go. But the brave choice would be to make us feel empathy for the German soldiers. Right, the way that I think Malik did with, with the Japanese soldiers. Right. But, but, you know, that, see, there's not much thinking you can do with that. When, when, you're, when it's very clear who the bad guy is, there's not much thinking that can go on. This is why Game of Thrones is so popular and so great. I mean, the most recent episode, I don't know if you saw it, but... No. We don't I don't need... watch the show. I'm oh, you don't watch the show? The one. Okay, yeah, okay. One. Um, but it's basically, there's, you know, it's, it's um, these varying sides, and we care about everybody, and we hate everybody. 
And so it's, you know, it's, you can't, when films create ambiguities, that's when you can enter your own thinking about it. And that's what I mean by it has to have ideas, you know, but it has to allow you to inject some sense of the ideas that are happening rather than dictating it. Going off track just a little, sure. and if, if you don't uh, have any thoughts on this, that's cool, but I'm curious. I have thoughts on this. <laughs> right. Well, uh, you mentioned Slavoj Žižek. I think he's talked about this, and other people have talked about this as well. But it seems superhero films in general are just absolutely ubiquitous nowadays. I mean, it's, it's, it's insane. It, it, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, I'm not really a fan of the genre too much. Um, but they seem to be really extremely popular and extremely profitable. Why do you think that is? Why in this particular era, why are they so incredibly popular? Or are they popular now for the same reason that hero stories have always been popular? I, I think there's a few things going on, and this is just speculation on my part, but I mean, I used to collect comic books. I love comic books. So I know all this stuff about the X-Men. I know their backstories and all that kind of stuff. Um, but <laughs> it's so funny, especially like the Batman films. It's a guy in a rubber suit. Right. That's yeah. so anachronistic or, you know, just so strange. Um, maybe anachronistic is the wrong word, but um, it's very strange that these films have taken off like they like they have. But I, I, I don't know. They they had a lot of marketing muscle behind it. There's not a lot of ideas happening in Hollywood right now. Mm. Um, you know, it's it's it, it's. It's kind of like the uh, you know popular music. It's it's just it's just what has gotten a foothold, and you know Stan Lee has all kinds of power now. You know it was Marvel and Fox at one point, and now it's the DC that's starting to come up, right? And they're starting to have their own thing. Um, I'm surprised that the audience hasn't gotten sick of it, but the stories are pretty good. They're not, you know, they're, they're not the type of film that, films that are going to make you think. And maybe people don't want to think. I mean, that's the, that's the common thing as well, is people, don't, people want to escape. And that's a legitimate reason to go to a film. And I think that's why they're popular. But um, I like some of them. I don't like others. I think the Avengers has worn itself out. I think the X-Men has worn itself out. I mean, it's just a, interesting to me that they're so popular. And so many so people popular. from so many walks of life love them. You know what I mean? Old people like them, really little kids like them. I mean, them. I, I think as well, there's, I mean, there is something Greek to these movies. There is, you know, there's, there's certainly these, um, these, these certain archetypes of characters that are, that are happening. I mean, the X-Men works because it's, a, it's, the whole thing is an allegory for racism and homophobia and things mm -hmm. like that. One of my, uh, one of my guilty pleasure films too is Tootsie. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, Dustin Hoffman in drag. <laughs> it's just, and like, okay, so what do you think about, just, just making it uh, a little more general, like, what do you think about the idea of guilty pleasures? Because this is a concept oh. in, you know, in, in music, for example, yeah. a lot of music I really love. Like, you've heard me DJ. Yeah. I love a lot of disco. Yeah. Uh, I love a lot of uh, music that, that, that some people perhaps would say is uncool. Mm -hmm. uh, and I like films sometimes that some people would say are uncool. I've always thought the idea of guilty pleasures is kind of a silly idea. It and it seems like you, even though you're you're well versed in in film theory and all the rest, like it seems like uh, you have a lot of guilty pleasures. Oh, I d yeah, but I don't even think of that. I'm proud of my guilty pleasure. Right. I'm not guilty at all. Of right, them. but like, we share uh, a bit of an obsession with Fleetwood Mac, for example. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of people would consider that maybe. Yeah, but you know that's that's an interesting band because of the stories and and oh. the darkness. I mean, you hear these pop songs, but there's just a ton of darkness going there's on there's about 14 grams of cocaine and, and, and that yeah, yeah. 
But um, yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of the Eagles because my dad used to play them all the time. My dad's you know, favorite band. Yeah. 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 Um, I, but I don't feel guilty about that at all. Um, I've never really, I've never really gotten fixed on the permissibility of culture. Um, That's a great phrase. You know, I mean, they, because there's a lot of people who, I mean, the reason why you're sort of trained by the Coen brothers to hate the Eagles because yes. the dude is so cool. Because of the Eagles, yeah. absolutely. Um, but I, I don't care. <laughs> Um, you know, I like what I like and I like them because they affect me in a certain way and in a nostalgic way or because I, you know, I like, I like beautiful things. I like, you know, art that is, um, you know, I love progressive rock. You do too. Um, I like stuff that pushes limits of things. But I think, I think you're like, I mean, you but like, then there's like ABBA too, yeah, you know, yeah. well, dancing queen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just in terms song. of like, like audible candy like you know all the levels and the harmonies and the beat and the bass the way it's mixed i mean things that just are so smooth you want to spread it on on toast you know what i mean like or give me a man after midnight i mean that song that that hook is undeniable i don't care you know know, a lot of this is what you grew up with i mean my parents played a lot of music first my, my mom played the piano a lot so she would play the beatles and she would play classical music on the piano she would play russian composers on on the turntable my dad would play motown my dad would play Joan Baez. My dad would play Beatles records. He would play America, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. You know, so th- all of these things, I think you take fucking Russian composers combined with the Beatles and you get, you know, my love of Yes, for example. You know, I mean, so a lot of this stuff comes from, from your upbringing, I think. I mean, what was, your, what, what was in the household when you were growing up? Well, my, my dad loved Motown. Uh, and I obviously I'm I'm obsessed with Motown and I absolutely love soul music and R&B. Um, my dad introduced me to Bob Dylan. Uh, my mom was a Beatles fan, but she loved the Stones more. So I got to the Stones through her. Um, and I've recently uh, rekindled my love of like old country music, mm. like you know Hank Williams Sr. My dad played Willie Nelson. George Jones, Willie Nelson. My mom's obsessed with Willie Nelson. Um, and it's really interesting too my parents said that this would happen to me and I resisted for years but it, it actually happened like a lot of the music you listen to like really really young the music that was on in the car when you're you know driving to and to and from school or whatever um, I've come back to a lot of that stuff and for me that's a lot of like cla- when I talk about old country music I don't mean like 90s country music I mean like 50s, 60s, mm-hmm. 70s stuff you know like I'll always have a soft spot for Conway Twitty you know mm-hmm. because, of my, because of my parents Um yeah, it's funny, like the whole idea of guilty pleasures. I kind of wear, I try to wear them on my sleeve, you know. Um, yeah, I, yeah, it's it's funny that it's called guilty. I, there there is a, a sort of shame that doesn't need to be there at all. Absolutely, yeah, I agree with that. And as a a huge yes fan, I think you have the you have the you know because okay, so yes, if for anyone listening, yes is uh, maybe the most nerdy progressive rock band ever, perhaps. I mean, yeah. twenty five minute opuses to you know. These magical worlds that don't exist and stuff. Um, I like yes, but I think you take it to the next level. Oh, I do, and I and I do kind of, you know, I've, obviously I think about everything that I think about. So, yeah. <laughs> but um, you know, I did, yes is is and and the whole progressive rock thing. They're like films to me. Mm-hmm. I you know I see it, and I've got a bit of synesthesia, so that that happens too when I listen to music. And so there's certain colors and certain atmospheres. <laughs> With uh, there's certain colors and certain atmospheres with um, you know certain music you know like yes is very much greens and blues and and um, a band like Genesis is kind of this 
dark-hued, muted, old film reel kind of um, London kind of thing going on, but pastoral also. So, you know, I get I, these films happen to me, with, and that's why I think I like a lot of progressive music. That's interesting, yeah. And I, I, I don't know about you, but, you know, when I, I discovered the Beatles when I was about seven, I think, and I've been pretty obsessed ever since. Um, but I've always thought the Beatles is like Technicolor, you know, mm-hmm. especially their later stuff. It just, it sounds so profoundly colorful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, perhaps it's, it, perhaps it's simply the fact that a lot of the early films are in black and white of the Beatles. And then around 66, 67, we start getting color, but all of a sudden, yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, but I know what you mean. Sometimes you hear a song and it sounds like certain colors, mm-hmm. um, for sure. Well, I want to go back to this question I asked you earlier okay. about, films that had a particularly big impact on you just as a man mm-hmm. i mean what, what are, the, are there any films you can look to in your life that really really had a profound impact on you because you and i've talked before about how malik's film the tree of life just kind of knocked me out um are there any other experiences in your life where you've had something like that um yeah i mean I, i'm trying to think i mean this is probably not answering it the way you want, but I, I was obsessed with um, horror films for a while. Um, I can't watch horror films anymore because they're too in your face now and the editing actually disturbs me. Um, but the old kind of 70s and 80s styles of yeah, the horror films. Yeah, the, the Exorcist, um, you know, but like all the Jamie Lee Curtis movies and things like that. Um, I used to love those. That's not That's not really answering your question, though. I mean... You know, if I think of the films that really affected me profoundly, um, watching, you know, it's these movies where you've never seen anything like that before. Pulp Fiction, I couldn't, I couldn't sit in my chair when I saw that in the theater because we'd never seen anything like that. It was so funny. It was so hilarious. And people don't think of that movie as a comedy. It's absolutely, if you were in the theater when that movie came out, everybody in the theater was laughing hysterically and talk about a film that hasn't aged a minute i mean pulp fiction yeah. came out in 94 i believe right. that's pushing 25 years ago mm-hmm. and it looks like it if it came out you know yesterday it would be just as current just as just as prescient and just as uh just as powerful i think a big one for me was oliver stone too when i was in my 20s um seeing um natural born killers um i saw that um and when I walked out of the movie, I was so angry. It just deeply, deeply affected me. Um, so yeah, Oliver Stone was, was, had a big effect on me. Um, uh, I, seeing Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, I'd never seen, I, I don't think there's ever been a better, more real, I hate that word real, but it, more effective um, romance you know the the actual things that we go through in relationships. One of the prop, prop, possibly like the greatest breakup film of all time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I think of breakup albums, there's a million one of them. Mm-hmm. But I think of like Joni Mitchell's Blue, mm-hmm. um, some other albums. But uh, you know, Ryan Adams' Love Is Hell. Mm-hmm. Great. But uh, yeah, Eternal Sunshine. That's another one that stays with you too. Yeah, I had to walk around the neighborhood. I saw that one by myself too, and I had to walk around the neighborhood for a while. I've never seen anything like that. So it's these it's these movies where you, you know you you know you've never seen something quite like that, and it and it affects you. Yeah. And there've been a few of those. I mean, you know, again, Saving Private Ryan. When I saw the the New World, Terrence Malick's film, um, I that was the first movie that I saw of him, actually. 
And um, I was completely, completely affected by that film. Why? 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 So for anyone who hasn't seen anything by Terrence Malick, well, I think most people have probably seen at least something like Terrence Malick, you know, I, you the, know, the Thin I, Red Line. But I do. I talk about it um, with people. You know, if, if it comes up in conversation, what are you doing? I'm writing a book. What's your book about? Do you know who Terrence Malick is? No. People really don't know who he is, which is strange because he's, you know, people who know film obviously know him. People who work in film obviously know him. But um, yeah, he did uh, Badlands, Days of Heaven, um, Thin Red Line, The New World, The Tree of Life. And then he's made a couple of dogs after that, I hate to say. But um, but yeah, so seeing The New World, I just, I, I, I didn't know what had just happened to me. And this is a film about... John Smith and Pocahontas, yeah. but told through a very um, speculative, obviously, I think. Yeah, speculative um, and and in a very kind of fragmented um, way that makes it feel like the film is trying to remember itself. But speaking personally, what did that film do for you? Or why do you think it had such an impact on you? I don't know. Um, I think... Um, I think these things, if you know, I think, I think we are the way we are for certain reasons, and we don't know why, right? And um, so I could intellectualize it and say it's because it had, it didn't, it worked through matters of love without having to explain or express things in words. Hmm. So you know, they, this idea that they're of different languages, right, and different cultures. And so it's a very, again, this idea of affect, which is, you know, expressions um, rather than words. And actually, the, you notice that when he goes out into, into the native world, there's not a lot of language being spoken. It's only when he goes back to um, the colony where language returns to his world that everything gets fucked up. So it's this, there was this kind of idyllic quality to the idea of sort of transcending language and living in nature and that sort of thing and living a love that maybe is purer than the idea of conversation mm. um, getting coming back to your idea of the or your uh, well yeah your your um, your notion of the ineffable yeah 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 and 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 again I don't know if I thought of that when I saw the film I think about it now um, you know you much like philosophy does, you know, things happen and you're like, oh, that's having an effect on me. I don't know why. Later you find the language for why these things are happening. So I think I, I sort of, it's almost like a bit of therapy to revisit a film you loved 20 years ago or 15 years ago and, um, and later have a language for why it is that it affected you. It's always been in you what affects you, but it's only later that you kind of are able to conceptualize why it is. Yeah, I mean... So I would say probably my all-time favorite film is uh, Blue Velvet by David Lynch. And uh, my relationship with that film has changed over the years. But it is one of those films that is just endlessly rewarding as I see it. And every time I watch it, I get something else out of it. And yeah. I think I learn more about myself every time I watch that. Well, you're pretty fucked up then. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, I, I took an old girlfriend to see that film. And... and <laughs> And I said, this is, my, this is my favorite movie. And after we came out of that, I think the relationship was pretty much, <laughs> it was, uh, yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's, yeah, for anyone who hasn't seen the film, it is extremely uh, disturbing in some ways, uh, brutal in some ways. 
extremely engrossing, I would say, and affecting film. Yes. And I think the thing that I love about that film is that I love that the way I see it is it's the struggle between dark and light and how dark and light exists in everyone. Um, and, you know, there are these, these conflicting impulses, these conflicting, um, well, yeah, conflicting impulses in all of us, and uh, especially in men. The dark, the immense darkness that men are capable of and the immense light that men are also capable of. But that's a whole other discussion about yeah, yeah, my I obsession with Blue Velvet. I think that's fair. I mean, it is a very, very dark film. And but that's it's all some of these films are almost like therapy in the sense that isn't it great that they're able to go to that darkness, right. you know, and, and, and that's nice. And that's a theme throughout David Lynch's films. It's this extreme, almost like, well, I wouldn't even say almost, like very corny moments in the way where they're so peachy, mm-hmm. you know, peachy clean and, and they're so bright and they're so warm and everything's very, very nice. Like the first 15, 20 minutes of Blue Velvet, you're thinking, what the hell am I watching here? This is ridiculous. Um, with very brief moments of darkness interspersed throughout. But anyway, that's yeah, another I think, discussion. I mean, I think that's, again... To me, there's this reflection of film and, and real life. And I think we go through our days, right, trying to understand things. And we do that when we walk into a film. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to understand this film. And then with filmmakers like David Lynch, you're like, I don't, I, I, it's just not, you know, it's not adding up. And I'm going to have to channel a different faculty of myself and, and see what happens here. And that is a form of therapy. I think, you know, it's, it's sort of... You don't have to rationalize this situation because we're all, that, that's what dreams are for. Dreams, I think it's Bergson said that we dream so that we you know, are able to release our need to rationalize things. That's why we dream. And it's necessary. So we go through every day we're supposed to be rational. Films allow us the opportunity to not have to be rational and to let go of that idea. It's the same thing as dreaming. That's a really interesting idea. Well, shifting focus sure. for a moment. I'm getting a little more personal. You uh-huh. did a PhD when you were 40-something. Yeah. Why? I was in South Korea at the time, um, and I was teaching filmmaking um, in Busan, South Korea. Um, well, let, let's, let's pause there and back up for a minute. Sure. What brought you from working in film projects and uh, audiovisual projects in America? What drew you to Asia? Oh, that's a story. It's kind of a long story. Basically, um, when I was getting my master's degree, my um, my the chair of my um, committee is Korean, and he and I became very close friends. And um, um, he started a business, and I was a sound designer for his film production company. And then he had a job um, opening for me in in Busan, South Korea, and um, I was living in San Francisco at the time, and I was living with my girlfriend and. But I said, yeah, sure, why not? Um, and I decided to go. I thought I'd stay a year, and I ended up staying six and a half. Um, so that's how I wound up um, in Korea. What do you think? This is a, a conversation I like to have with with people who we might consider expats. So people who are you know not just backpacking or not just traveling for a short period of time. Do you feel like you get homesick? Because this whole idea of homesickness, like, and it's not me trying to be cool or something. Because I think a lot of Maybe not a lot, but certainly some expats like to play the game of I'm more of an Asian than you are, or I'm you know more well adjusted to the local culture than you are, and they say, oh, I never get homesick. But I really don't feel that impulse very. Often. I don't get homesick. Yeah, like I, I don't. very rarely at Christmas time I do. Yeah, Christmas. But 
but that's that, about it. That's about it. Yep, yeah. that's it. Um, and I don't know why that is. Um, do I miss my family? Yeah. Um, I you know, and I miss landscape. I miss California, you know, for its landscape. Um, but I much prefer my life uh, in Asia than I do in California. Why? Because I I don't like it when things are too predictable and normal, and Asia is always unpredictable. That's, that's certainly true. And it, it, it's also, it, it, it requires you to be adaptable, and you cannot expect things to go according to your preconceived ways of thinking of them, and I like that. That's, that's pretty much exactly what my answer would be if someone yeah. asked me that question. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So why do a PhD at this stage in the game? Uh, yeah, because um, so I was I was in my maybe my fifth year there, um, fourth or fifth year I can't remember. Um, I heard about the EGS program and um, I liked the sound of it. I've always been interested in philosophy. It was my uh, minor as an undergrad, and you know it, I was enjoying my career as a professor. I liked teaching, um, and so I wanted to keep going and to get to the next level. You're supposed to get a PhD. I thought about getting a PhD, at, uh, and I actually got accepted at Korea University in Seoul, but I would have had to learn Korean to do it. And you know, people say, "Yeah, just learn Korean," but come on. Um, so I rejected that offer, um, and I decided to go to EGS and get my PhD. And it was one of the best decisions I've ever made. Even though EGS is um, sometimes not seen. Uh, as you know, it's not something like the University of Texas, right? It's an alternative PhD program, but you just accept that. I mean, I went for the intellectual stimulation, and I got that in abundance. So you're you're 48 now, is that right? Yep. Yeah. Have you have you like what what? I guess what I'm curious about is how have you made these major decisions in your life, and did you have some sort of grand vision or plan, say 20 or 25 years ago? No plan at all. No, no and you feel like you've never had that. I've never, I've never, I've never been ambitious. I've never had an interest in, in making a plan. Um, I, I try to live my life in, in, in the sense of um, seeing what happens and then making a decision. And, and I've always found that it's nine times out of ten better to make the decision than not make the decision. So if you get an offer to do something or something comes up, do it instead of not doing it. So most of the times in my life, I've done something that's come up. But, you know, I'm... I'm so your default response to these, these... When someone offers you something or you get an opportunity, your default response is yes often. Yeah. Okay. But I'm the same way with women, too. I don't go out and chase women, but if, if, if it arises and I'm attracted, sure. I see. <laughs> I see. And how has that served you? Very badly. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. Okay. Yeah, I'm fairly passive in that in that sense. Really, I go long stretches um, of not being with someone. And so for me, I think I'd go a little crazy. But you feel like it hasn't had a big impact on you? I know I'm very good at being alone. Interesting. It gets lonely. Yeah. How do you deal with that? I work. Yeah. I write. I read. I watch films. I play music. Yeah. I get out. Spend time with friends. And if things happen, they happen. If they don't, they don't. 
Interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a great. That's a great sort of. Uh, I think that's a pretty good philosophy in general. It's just in general, say yes. No, I don't. I don't. I don't know that it is necessarily. Uh, oh, that. Yeah. I, but my passivity. I don't. I wouldn't recommend that to other people. It's just the way that I am. Um, you know, a lot of people are more um, active, and there. I mean, I'll. What I'm saying is, I'll be active. Like if something comes and I jump on it. I'm in 100%. Mm. And so I'm very active in that sense. But I don't go looking for things. I see. I'm sort of... I don't know, I read this book by Tom Brown Jr. once. He's this naturalist. And he said, if you want to if, if go out into the woods and if you want to experience nature, don't go looking for deer, don't go looking for, you know, whatever. Sit still and wait and nature will come to you. Mm. And I read that when I was a kid, I think. And it, it, that line from the book always stuck with me. So I go places and I just wait for things to happen. It, I, I don't advise anybody to do that. Why not? Because I don't know that it's a good idea for most people, but it works for me. I'm not really interested in attaining things. So it's worked for me depending on you know, how you determine success in life. I don't know. Do you think, do you think about the future? Like, Do you try to picture yourself in 20 years and... and do you have a definite vision or do you have any thing that you, you think you might want to have or someone you might want to be? Or No, I would like to be with someone long term. I would like to be with, you know, I... I um, so the first thing you think of is relationships. Um, well, I think about career. I, it's really like I'm, I'm not teaching right now. I did get offered a job in, in, um, in Zhuhai, China, and that's in process right now. Um, but I'm not working right now and I haven't for about a year and a half. And that gets, that weighs heavily on your psyche, not having a job for a long period of time. Um, and then when it comes to um, relationships, yeah, of course I think about it. But um, I don't know when you when you get to be in your upper forties, you also think um, maybe I'm past the whole myth of a relationship um, because you can't. When you get to be forty-eight, you can't keep doing the you know, meeting the girl and then saying, you know, and then going through all the stuff and then saying, are we going to have a future together? And when you've gone for 48 years and that hasn't happened, you start thinking, why am I continuing this myth with the new person? So when you say myth, do you mean like happily ever after, lifelong yeah, monogamy, that yeah, kind of thing? Because, okay. and, and it's not that it doesn't, it's a myth because it doesn't happen. It's a myth for me because it hasn't happened. So, you know, it, most people, I think, you know, they meet, a girl and they have a relationship and they get married um, and that hasn't happened for me so has it been something you've wanted or have you I was engaged of, once right yeah. right yeah but have you applied this philosophy of just kind of letting things happen and a uh, certain passivity have you so that's been in your dating life as well would you say yeah okay yeah interesting interesting so you don't think about the future too much um, I, I have existential anxiety about yeah. the future. Of course, everybody does. Yeah. So, of course, um, yeah, I do, I do think about the future, but not in any specific way. And I don't, I'm not one of these people who's like, oh, God, I'm going to do a plan. I don't do any of that kind of stuff. Okay, well, let's, let's pretend... Uh, which is, well, I, I'm curious because... Let's say you were talking to your 28-year-old self mm -hmm. 20 years ago. This is always a tricky question. People have asked me, like, what advice would you give uh, an 18-year-old version of you? And I'm always kind of stumped for an answer. 
But what, what would you say, what advice would you give to Jim 20 years ago? 20 years ago, I'd have to think about that. So that's 28. Um, I don't know. I think, I think, I don't know. I have thought about this question and I can't come up with an answer. I don't know what advice I would give to myself. I think I would say read more books. <laughs> because reading is what I love to do now and I wish I had done more of it um, uh, years ago um, I, I had an interest in philosophy and I read a lot and then I got into other things and I sort of dropped the reading thing um, and now I'm trying to catch up with all the literature that I've missed um, but other than that God, I've traveled everywhere I've played music everywhere I've, <laughs> you know, I I've I've done a lot of things that have made me very happy. I've I've um, spent a lot of great times with great friends and great women in my life, and I've always been attracted to smart women, and so it's always been enjoyable. Um, all those relationships that I've had, some of them have ended badly, but what relationship doesn't? Um, but um, no, I, don't, I I can't, and and I know you know this is I should have some answer for this, but and it sounds kind of weird that I don't have an answer. Like what would I? Because it, I think the question implies that there's if if I had asked my, if I could tell my 28 year old something that it would be helpful that would change the path, um, maybe get your PhD now. I would tell myself to get my PhD now at 28. Mm. Uh, um, things that I got around to later, I wish I had gotten to earlier. So maybe that's the answer. But it sounds like you don't have a lot of regrets. I don't. I don't have a lot of regrets. Um, I can't think of any regrets. I like how we're talking like you're like this ninety-year-old man on your deathbed. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you're, um, you're a very healthy forty-year-old <laughs> man, for the record. <laughs> I, I might be in total denial. You know, I, I have no idea. Um, but I can't. I can't think of anything that I'm regretful of. What are you most proud of? I proud of. I, I don't know how to answer that either. I'm proud of. I'm not proud of anything. I, I'm not not proud of anything. <laughs> I, I don't know that. I, that's a difficult word for me. Jim is enlightened. That's the. That's the <laughs> no, I'm just. Yeah, I am. It's but a I very am content. tough question. I, I am content with yeah. with my existential anxiety. Okay, shifting focus a little bit. And this is might be another tricky question, but for someone listening to this who loves movies, mm-hmm. but perhaps hasn't thought critically about why they like the movies they like and why they don't like movies. What would you just tell someone, you know, in general, who loves movies, how to get more out of movies? Is there any advice you could offer them? I would say see a lot of movies. Um, So see more movies. Yeah, see more movies. Um, You know, a lot of of people might answer, learn the techniques, but I'm not not really, I don't think technique, learning techniques is going to teach you... um, to view films at any greater depth. I mean, if you learn how to dolly shot works or, you know, something like that, it's not, that's not what cinema is about. Um, I would say, you know, read some philosophy. I think if more people read philosophy, this world would be a better place um, in general. And since I tend to think of cinema as an extension of experience, you know, just like any experience, if you read philosophy, it's going to, it's going to help you broaden your questions about things. So what are, trying to get more specific what are a couple of philosophy books that you would or even a couple of philosophers who would you you would recommend particularly to people who want to get more out of film 
out of film um i think someone who's really good to read and who can kind of give you a sort of a resonance of what's happening in philosophy or what's happening in cinema is Henri Bergson. He's he's not difficult to read, um, but he is challenging to read. But he's very much um, an intuitive philosopher. Um, and um, he's someone who's who's famous for losing out to Einstein in his conception of time. Um, but at, at his time, he was um, a very influential philosopher. Um, he's not really in favor right now. But in terms of cinematic stuff, Bergson is great. I would read um, Zizek, um, you know, for you know a variety of different aspects of cinema. He's got a lot of YouTube stuff too on cinema. Well, I would say, I mean, I love his documentaries, uh, The Pervert's Guide to Ideology and The Pervert's Guide to Cinema. I yeah. think they're both called. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love his documentaries mm-hmm. as well. I'm not crazy about his writing, um, but I think his documentaries mm-hmm. are great. And also, you know, if you, I mean, read Freud. I think Freud is one of the most important. Um, philosophers there is and, and, and so much of cinema is, is Freudian stuff Freudian um, fragmentations and, and trauma and memory and stuff like that he also if you want to take a popular view of him you know he treated women like shit in terms of his concepts and um, you know a lot of his stuff has turned out to not be correct because he wasn't that regimented of a, of a scientist but, um, but his writings his concepts are dead on and they teach us that as much as we think we are being rational we are not we're animals and you know we don't know what we're doing that's sort of what freud was to me one of the most important things he's trying to say is that we think we're rational and we're not yeah absolutely and uh what a great note to to close on as far as i don't know what i'm doing yeah 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 <laughs> that's always because kitchen. you know then you just continue yeah absolutely absolutely well jim this was a, this was a lot of fun man thanks a lot for uh, for coming to my kitchen and for indulging me for the past hour and a half or so. thank you it was an enjoyable talk there you have it congratulations on making it all the way to the end I hope you enjoyed another wide-ranging conversation on this podcast. And uh, if you liked it, please go to iTunes and leave a rating and a review. And also, if you want to know more about Jim and his very interesting work, you want to pick up his brand new book, which just came out this week, please visit humansinlove.com, where you'll find information about everything we talked about and links where you can connect with Jim on the World Wide Web. Thank you, as always, for listening. I appreciate your listenership and support very much. And please remember, my friends, that life is short, so be sure you enjoy every precious second. Thanks for listening, guys. I'll talk to you again very soon.